Hello, everybody. Happy, happy Wednesday. Cheers. It's happy hour. We've made it halfway through the week. Hope it's been a fantastic one for everybody. I appreciate everybody for coming and joining in and hanging out with me for another edition of happy hour. We've got another fantastic guest planned for you today. She should be joining us any moment now. Um, her name is Molly Gursky, and she is the co-owner of a high-end restoration shop called Driven Restorations. And she's got a pretty incredible story. She's phenomenally talented. I have a ton of respect for her. And uh, I'm really excited to introduce you guys to her. So hopefully she'll be joining in in just a little bit here. Um, let's see. I see her there. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. Ah, uh, technology. Hope everybody's got a drink. Hope you brought your questions. There she is. Hello, beautiful. Hi. How are you? I am fantastic. How are you? Good. Yeah? It's been a long day. I tried to clean up at least a little bit. So <laughs> I made an effort. <laughs> All right. All right. Do you have a drink? That's the important part. I do. Yes. Oh, good. Cheers. What are you drinking today? <laughs> Uh, it's white wine. I like dry white wine. So all right. All right. Fair enough. So what were you working on today? Let's start with that. Oh, let's see. Well, in the morning, it was uh, writing contracts and meeting with some new customers. So um, that was pretty much from eight until noon. That's what we did. So we booked some future jobs. That's so awesome. that's really exciting. Yeah. Us. Um, and then uh, this afternoon, boy, what did I do? I put... <laughs> it's a blur, right? Uh, I put, yeah, it really is. I did a, a master cylinder access hole on the 59 Suburban. Okay. So I had to do some cutting and fabrication for that. Um, and then I prepped it all so that we could do, like, the sound deadener and get the... There's a rubber mat that's going to go in the front side of that. So that's what I spent my afternoon doing. Awesome. It's all over the place. You just never know what I'm going to be. <laughs> what all What all do you have in the shop right now? What kind of builds do you have going on? Oh, now you're quizzing me. Let's see. Um, the long-term builds that we have, I know, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. So the long-term builds are, um, we have a 49 Buick Special 41. That's a four-door. Uh, a 1980 Trans Am. A, the 59 Suburban, which is patina, but it's totally custom otherwise. So it's got like a 475 horsepower crate engine in it. Nice. Um, automatic transmission. It's got Denali seats going in it. Oh, so fun. it's, I mean, just the outside is patina. The rest is all modern. Um, let's see. We have a 65 Lincoln Continental. I'm really thinking. This is hard. A 69 a Nova. <laughs> You've got a lot going um, on in the shop. My goodness. I know. Yeah. There's 12, 12 cars in here at any given time. So you just never. And some of them are in for just mechanical. So we've got a Trans Am, a 41 Ford, uh, and a 68 Mustang in here right now just for maintenance items and like assembly stuff. So we're all over the board. You just never know. I love it. All right. Let's, let's fill everybody in a little bit on, on what who are you and what do you do? So this shop that you're talking about with all these incredible cars and projects going on, tell us a little bit about Driven Restoration, what you guys do, and then we'll we'll go into backstory. Sure. So now, as of to like this 
year, this last like three, four years. Um, we have about 4,000 square feet of indoor shop space with our own paint booth and all the metalworking. So I have my own metal room, which is my favorite room ever. Um, and then we've got, so we have the body shop, assembly and mechanical area, and then the metal room, and then a bunch of cold storage and a sandblasting shed. And we're all out in the country. So like when you pull in our driveway, it's all asphalt and nice, but our house is on the property. The summer, our kids are running around. We've got two horses, three dogs, a bunch of chickens. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of a unique setting and a nice location. Um, but in our shop, we do anything from paint and body to um, just mechanical customizing. Uh, we'll do basic interior stuff, but we leave like the high-end stitch stuff to the experts. So uh, we always we farm that out because that needs a special touch. Um, the only stuff we don't do in-house is stitch upholstery, um, the chrome plating, obviously, and engine machine work. Everything else, like engine teardown assembly, all the maintenance stuff, that's all done here. So, and it's all makes and models, mostly American, but that's just, it's whatever the customer brings. I was, for everybody watching, I was privileged enough to um, get to be out there for their, was it your grand reopening after they did the expansion? Yeah. And, like seriously, yeah. I want you guys to hear her when she describes the way this place looks. Like you're driving down this picturesque Wisconsin road, like it's beautiful <laughs> and country. And you pull up on this gorgeous old farmhouse looking type deal with a bunch of property and horses and dogs running around. And and then it's a shop, it's a house, it's an everything. Like everything is all wrapped yep. in one, which is awesome and also challenging, isn't it? Yeah, you're never you're never at work or at home per se right <laughs> so i always like my the breaks in my day are when i go pick up when i i drop off cora at 7 30 and i pick her up at 4 30 and that's like my defining times of the day right. and I, sadly enough i have to set an alarm at 3 45 or i will forget to go and get her oh i wonder because <laughs> i'll get believe it yeah, you get, you get zoned in on what you're doing. Yep. Yeah, it's just unreal. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you get into the zone. You're working. I mean, because you're you're not just running the shop. You're hands on in the shop. So you're doing toggling all of the things. I can 100% imagine you like elbows deep in a car or a project and be like, Oh, what time is it? I'm supposed to be somewhere. <laughs> yeah. How how have you and have you like how do you balance that like? It's real easy on the outside to look at it and go, oh my God, this woman is a superwoman. How does she do it all? And yet I know it's not always easy. No, um, I don't. So I heard, you know, I was in corporate before I did this. So I did like corporate sales and marketing and I worked with the sales team and that sort of stuff. And so we did a lot of sales training and like team building training and stuff. And we attended this one that was geared toward women and the lady that was speaking said you can only gauge how productive and successful your day was by how mad everybody is at you if they're all equally mad at you you did it perfectly all day long oh my <laughs> gosh it's a perfectly and i'm like you know what that's perfect because you can't make every i'm so tired of the make everybody happy thing i can't make everybody happy i'm always going to make one person happy and then the other person's mad so you just gotta like it's sort of like picking your battles. So like, what did I do from five o'clock until just now? I made dinner, fed the kids, 
and didn't shower. So here I am. And now I'm, I'm going to take a shower later. I mean, it's just you have to be comfortable with flexibility and gray area. And you have to be comfortable with people just being, you know, underwhelmed at certain times. But then you knock the socks off somebody else. So it's always whatever I'm doing, I'm fully dedicated to. And then tomorrow it might be you. So, I mean, I never neglect any one thing. It's just the balancing act every single day. But trying to put that pressure on yourself where you have to be everything to everybody every day is unrealistic. Right. I just don't even try. And then where does, where does the neglecting or not neglecting yourself come in too, right? That's a problem. Yeah, that is a problem. And that's especially um, with recently, especially because it's the trying to balance not the kids not having full-time school for a period of time. So then you really start to pay attention to, okay, if I'm not physically in the shop every single day, that is in fact a problem because I am doing the books. I am doing all the marketing side of it. And if I'm not physically there, it's really hard to promote something that you're distanced from, even though, I mean, yeah, it's on the property, but when you have a three-year-old between your legs all day, yeah. you're not going to go take photos when somebody's welding. You can't. So, no, yeah. It's a lot. God, there's so many different areas that I want to talk about with you. Um, all of it. I want to talk about all of it. But I want to, you mentioned coming from corporate. Like, that's, that's a big transition. And you made a major life change. And so I want to touch on that a little bit. Like, what what is your background? Where did you kind of start out in life thinking you were going to be? And then how did we get to where we're at now? <laughs> when did that shift happen? <laughs> yeah, that's a long, <laughs> I'll try and make it short. Um, I always knew I loved business. And that was since freshman year in high school, I was, um, I don't want to say recruited because it wasn't like a recruitment thing, but that there was a program for um, entrepreneurship at my high school in Madison. So I, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. I went to Madison West and I owe my dedication to the business side of things to Mrs. Plourd and Miss Thiel because those two ladies enrolled me in DECA and DECA changed my life. So I, my freshman year in high school, I wrote a entrepreneurship plan to start a business. And then from that moment on, I was like, I'm going to own my own business. I'm not meant to be an employee in any shape, way or form. I'm going to do this. So that's what started that side of things. And that was sort of the driver for all of the decisions I made from that point forward. And the cars thing was really strange because my parents weren't into cars. My sisters weren't into cars. We grew up in the middle of the city. We're a mile from Camp Randall Stadium in Madison where the Badgers play, right? So you can hear the band. And I don't really know how I got into cars, but I remember going to the library and reading the Chilton repair manuals. Really? Yeah, which is really strange because I'm not mechanical now. Yeah. Like that's not my fourth. I'm into like the metalwork and bodywork side and assembly, that sort of thing. But yeah, I would like stick my nose in a Chilton auto repair manual at the library and my mom would browse the racks and I'd just read them. And then it was like four by four magazine and all like the truck magazines and stuff. 
I don't know why <laughs> I was drawn to them. My mom's like, what are you doing? But she was always super supportive of any, like you wanted to do anything. And she's like, okay, well, where's a lesson? Where's a, a book? Where's whatever we can do to support you. Let's go that route. Um, my dad had me changing oil in the driveway and our, you know, their daily drivers and stuff, but they weren't automotive per se. Weirdly enough, my oldest sister, Emily, is actually a GM ASC certified mechanic in Indianapolis. So I look up to her. I don't know where she got it either. It's just we both like to do things with our hands. So for me to go in, I wanted to do something with animals. So I got my four-year bachelor's of science degree at River Falls, um, which is a University of Wisconsin network school. And I graduated in three and a half years. Um, with high honors and then I got a job six months before I graduated in corporate sales and doing dairy nutrition. So that was like my introduction to sales and marketing on like a practical side. And then I just kind of took it and ran with it. I showed everybody up. I tried to leave that job and they fired me off an illegal email, which now if I knew what I know, if I knew then what I know now, I would have sued them. But I didn't, I was naive. <laughs> so, um, but that was all in agriculture. And it was sort of the same thing. Because it was a, that was also a very male-dominated field. But, I mean, compared to automotive, it's a mildly male-dominated field, especially today. Like, today, I'd say there are leaps and bounds ahead of automotive. Really? Just in, like, number of people that are involved in things. So... Um, yeah, from there I went to, I worked at Landmark Nutrition for a while, so I did more dairy nutrition. I very quickly moved up. I did sales and corporate things, and the closer I got to a corporate office, the more I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of spreadsheets, and, like, I like numbers, but not in that aspect, where you're, like, measured by a cutoff of a number. So, um, yeah, that's when I kind of, and I left in... 2014, I think it was. Okay. And that was when I went and did, we started the business in 09. And when I, by the time I left in 14, um, I had just been running the business side of it. And then I transitioned into the shop full time from there. So, and Steve taught me everything from there. So you were doing both for a while. You were, you were living the corporate yeah. life and running the shop. Yep. The first five years that we had the shop. Yep. Wow. <laughs> That's how we started it without like a big loan or some big, like, you know, the, you don't want the debt monster breathing down your back the whole time when you're trying to start a business. So, I mean, I made good enough money that we could put literally every penny that the shop earned back into the shop. So that's what we did. We just kept reinvesting in tools and equipment and buildings and rinse and repeat. And now here we are. So that's awesome. So that's something I actually want to talk a little bit more about because that's come up a lot in in questions that I get about, start, you know, everybody wants to start their own business. Everybody wants to be their own boss. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of appeal to it. And there's a lot of wonderful things about it. There's also a lot of not so great stuff about it. But there's a lot of like myth and urban legend around running your own business. And a question that I get often mm -hmm. is, do you start out as a side hustle or do you quit everything? Like I had a woman talk to me recently. She asked me, um, whether whether it was okay to keep working a job and start your business because somebody had told her that if you're going to start your own business you just have to you just have to jump you just have to sever all ties and jump and i'm like well i mean that's one way of doing it but there's there's a mixed bag like if you had to do it all over again 
would you do it the same way or would you do it different? Um, I would. I actually think I would quit earlier. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I thought I had to hang on longer than I did. There's a It's a mixed bag because there were sides of it where I'm like, God, I wish I had more savings when I quit. And don't we all always wish that in any situation, especially that sort of situation where you're like, goodbye, weekly paycheck, yeah. like that is gone now. And I have no health care. Like I had a company car. I had a company phone, the computer. I had all of the things for the company. So, I mean, I had to physically go get a phone. It was like, yeah, it's like, I don't like, what's that ringtone? Oh, it's mine. Um, yeah, it was really at the time I thought it was too soon, but now when I look back on it, I'm like, no, I should have done it not right away, but I should have done it at least 12 months sooner okay. when I had the inkling, when I had the inkling that it was going to happen. I should have just been like, okay, here's my 30 days. I'll train my replacement. Goodbye. And, what do you and it would have been a smoother transition. What do you mean by when you knew it was going to happen? Like the business was going to be successful or you knew that you were going to quit? When I knew I was going to quit. Because okay. I remember I quit in July. I think it was 2014. It might have been 2013. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a blur. <laughs> um, but I, I know that I quit in, it was July. And I remember thinking in, it was in December of that, that Christmas, my uncle asked me, he said, how is business going? So we have a family Christmas party every year because I'm a New Year's Eve or a Christmas Eve baby. I was due on New Year's uh -huh. Eve. But um, so we have our big family gathering every year at my parents' house for Christmas Eve. And my uncle was asking me, um, so what's your goal with the shop? You know, is that just going to be like Steve's thing and you just keep working and like, what are you going to do? And I remember saying to him, no, I'm going to quit and I'm going to work full time in the shop. And I remember the look on his face because it was like, I don't think you can do that. <laughs> like, you don't, even, you don't even do that now. And it's not, and it was totally out of an area of like total naivety. He had I don't think he realized how much I was invested in the business already as far as like what I was doing. But just that little bit of doubt was enough to make me like, dude, <laughs> you don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> like here I come. <laughs> when did you start when did you start actually working in the shop? Like physically? I, it was right it was right away when I quit. So I mean I kind of thought it was hard because I had to transition to not getting up to an alarm and like driving to the office and all of that, right. you know, the routine stuff. So there's like a buffer period. You got to give yourself like 14 days. I'm going to say to sort of like decompress and be like, okay, I need a life again. Like I need a routine. Right. But you have to redefine it. It's totally different, especially since the property is, is your house. It's the shop. And the house. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it even weirder. So I, I mean, it was pretty fast. I think a lot of people are getting a little like taste of that, you know, people who aren't, who are now working from home, who didn't used to work from home. Right. Yeah. Um, that's that they're kind of being faced with that whole concept of, I have to really create the, the structure in my own life here. And I, I remember the same thing when I went from working for someone else to working for myself, it was like, Oh, it, I, I could easily not wake up 
until 10 in the morning, but then I have to work until 2 a.m., <laughs> right? And like, exactly with that structure for yourself and what works for you and, and kind of forcing it. Cause you kind of like, I know I need it. Like we always say we don't want anything, you do. here, but we need it. <laughs> no, yeah, you need to have some sort of a, a boundary. And like for me, knowing that like I have a built-in one with the daycare times right. and things, and now she's going to go into 4K, maybe. I don't know. If they open 4K, she'll go to 4K. We'll see. Um, but it's kind of nice to have that, that like morning, this has to happen at this time in the morning, and then this has to happen at this time in the afternoon. And now that is a routine, and I have built-in alarms. Like, I have to set an alarm for lunch, or I won't eat, and then it'll be 1 o'clock, and I'm yelling at somebody, and they're like, you didn't eat lunch. It's like, oh, <laughs> Oops. <laughs> like, yeah, my bad. <laughs> There's, I don't think they were up when you were at the shop last, but we have signs around the shop now that say there's food in the freezer, there's food in the fridge, there's food in the cabinets. <laughs> Help yourself because if you wait for Bogey yes. to eat, you're never going to eat. Yes. <laughs> Bogey just That's totally me too. <laughs> Steve is like, Steve is the food police for me. He'll walk in if I'm like working up. It's usually when I'm welding something and I'm like, no, like, let me finish what I'm doing. I have to finish this. I'm busy. I'm welding. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Leave me alone. I'm in my Zen moment. <laughs> so, okay. So you, you had an early interest in cars. You went off on a totally different tangent and went into agricultural nutrition and all of the corporate side of things you ran a business at the same time as being in the corporate world um yeah the plunge dove into the business so how like was there other car stuff that came up through your life in between then or was it like a coming home when you came back to working on cars when the business started or when you got to start That's working deep on them? <laughs> um <laughs> I did feel like I was home, but I think it was more of a, I've always been like a ha very hands-on, like I like to see something tangible out of what it is that I'm doing. So the, the corporate world with like the dairy nutrition and stuff worked for me because it was very science-y. I've always loved science. So I could do I could do this entire dairy ration. I mean, you want to talk about human nutrition versus dairy nutrition. I mean, you know how much vitamin E one cow is getting in international units on a daily basis. And I could, I like, I don't even, I'm lucky if I drink some milk today. Like that's, <laughs> it's silly to me. So you had it down to such a science. And it was amazing to me that when you would make the minorest little tweaks to their diet, that you'd come back a week later and they were like, yeah, cows went up like three pounds in milk last week with that new ration. So it's working really well. You know, the test results were good. Everything was good. So you'd see results. It was delayed though. Yeah. So then when I came into the shop and it was like, okay, this needs to be done. It has to fit. Here are the specs. And I mean, usually I'm making my own templates now and things, but initially it started out where Steve would be like, okay, you need to cut this size. It has to fit for this. So test fit it here. And it was very like step-by-step step. and now he just lets me go. Um, but it's that immediate reward. It is so rewarding. And I always tell people, nobody ever cried over a spreadsheet. 
that I did. And they were beautiful. They were wonderful spreadsheets. And they showed you what would happen if you did the things that I told you to do. <laughs> but nobody ever was excited about it. And now when I build a car, when I mean, we finish a car here and we give it back to them and they cry. I mean, it's like you don't get more reward from what you do than seeing the joy in somebody else's face. So, I mean, we don't have a car that we drive around and we love and we enjoy because we love them all. We build them for other people. And that's where we get that like adrenaline rush of like, they like it. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of your projects are, are really emotional product projects too. Like they have, they have stories. I mean, I think, I, I think cars in general, classic cars in general, that's why that's part of what we love about cars is the story and the yeah. community and the connection. But um, but you've done a couple of like really impactful, sentimental builds yeah. that makes a big difference. We've done a number and we've done in the entire time that we've been in business, we thought at the beginning, just like everybody thinks, you have to do an auction car. You have to get your reputation out there. Just do one, take a loss, you know, be done with it, that sort of thing. And it was right at the beginning, Steve brought home two 1965 galaxies one was an xl 500 the other one was just like a baseline galaxy but we were going to do a frame swap because one frame was shot and the other one was good and then body was vice versa so we started it and then it sat in a shed for four and a half years because we finished a build for somebody else and then he went around and was telling the story to other people and that's how our business got going. Our business is based on people who have owned their vehicles or have dreamt of the vehicle that they're bringing us for pretty much their lifetime. Like the 49 Buick we have in here was the one the guy learned to drive in. So it's cars that speak to them and then you call them up and you're like hey sorry it's taking a little longer to straighten the roof do you mind telling us what happened to it <laughs> and then we'll go into stories about um well we lit our other car on fire on top of a hill and had to walk home and there may have been some roof surfing on the way oh my god <laughs> it's like you, you can't make stuff up it's just ridiculous i mean it's the enter it's entertaining but it's so endearing and it just it gives you a more meaning behind the panel that you're fixing it's yeah. not just like a panel swap on a 06 kia or something i mean it's it has a meaning to the people that are investing in it i think it's a really valuable point too that like you know people said you had to do a certain thing in order to be successful right and and there's more than one way to do anything, right? There's there's nine yeah. million ways to go about it. And at the end of the day, it's like, what are you trying to accomplish? If if you're trying to accomplish fame and fortune, then then you're gonna do one set of things. If you're trying to accomplish yeah. building a successful business that supports your family and is something that brings you joy every day, then that's that's a different set of things, right? <laughs> like those are not necessarily the same path, right? Because um, I get that a lot. Not, yeah. People ask me, like, you know, how did you how did you get to do what you do? I'm like, are you talking about me being a mechanic or me being on TV? Because those are di totally different exactly. careers, right? <laughs> yeah, totally they are. And I still can't figure out how you like wear all those different faces for all the different times that you have to do things. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't. I, 
I remember calling you up one day or texting you. I saw you posted something on social media and I was like, how do you do it all? And you just simply answered, wine. Lots of wine. <laughs> there are days. I'm not going to lie. There are days. <laughs> well, you, you make it look easy. And that's something that uh, is, is very impressive. You seem to, to balance all of the things. Um, somebody asked a question earlier, and I want to come back to it because I think it actually kind of um, touches on on this idea of what we've just been talking about a little bit. Um, your restorations, they take a really long time. You're invested in the customer. You're invested in the process. It's a story. You're part of their life. Like, it's this big thing. It's a really yeah. good, long process. How do you... A, get that instant satisfaction that you like getting, that instant reward and feedback when you're on such a long-term project. But then also to the, the point of the question that was asked was, how do you know that it's going to be profitable if you can't look at like the final numbers until the end? And how, I know those are two very different questions, but I'm going to just throw that out there. Yeah, they are. You. They, they are, but they're not because you, you have to play it by ear along the way. And we always give them the caveat. So we structured our business from the very beginning where we are not, we are not financing your dream. Like this is your dream. And if you walk out on the road and get hit by a bus tomorrow, I will give you whatever money you had on account back. Like that's not, I'm not going to pay for it so that if you disappear tomorrow, I'm on the hook. So we always finance it very smartly with our customers. So that the, the financial side of every build is not in the back of my mind because if we go to a point on a build where they're like, I don't want to do it anymore, which hasn't happened yet in 10 years. And we've done a lot of cars. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, knock on wood. <laughs> um, it, it's something that we protect ourselves, but we also protect them. So everybody finances their own car. We're not shifting money between cars. You're always on a prepaid balance and we know our operating costs. So if you know your operating costs and then you can do the estimates and then I do um, 18 month projections for shop income versus expenses. So I always know what our fixed expenses every day of every month for operating. I know what it costs to hire somebody, to fire somebody, um, both in hours and in money. Um, so I understand it's very important to know your numbers on that grainy of a level. You have to know that so that every single decision you're making along the way every single day is information based. You cannot make financial decisions with emotions. Now, when you're building a car, <laughs> you are making emotional decisions every minute of every single day because you get to a point on a certain panel and you're like, I can't stretch this metal anymore or it's going to crack, but I'm still not where I need it to be. So do I push it or do I call it now and try again? <laughs> so, I mean, you're always, you start with, I try to keep like a weekly tax, task list and then reevaluate on Wednesday. <laughs> so when I'm, I start out Sunday night and I'm like real ambitious. I'm going to do all of the things and the stuff. And then I get to like Tuesday evening and I'm going, I'm not a third of the way through my list because I had four phone calls and eight requests for estimates. So now I'm in the office tomorrow. 
so I always, you have to be realistic with yourself, but task lists, I got to there is something for me about having a list and knowing, and I go over it with Steve. So knowing that I'm accountable to another person who's fully invested with what I have to do and then what he has to do, plus the employees is like, okay, we can bust through this and we can have a productive week. If we get through three quarters of it, we'll be good. Nice. Did anybody paying, like really paying attention to what Molly just said, like there's a whole, whole lot in there. Like she just dropped some <laughs> incredible knowledge. Like be disciplined, have task lists, be focused, but be flexible and know that they might change, but still keep yourself on task. But huge, huge, huge knowledge that she just dropped on knowing your operating costs and knowing that granular <laughs> level of things. That's huge. You know who taught me the gray area in scheduling? Children. <laughs> you can have all the plans in the world and then one of them doesn't feel good or the other one just doesn't want to. Right. And, and <laughs> all your plans, best laid plans of my system, yeah. right? <laughs> yep, exactly. You're like, oh, hey, we're not doing that today. That's fine. <laughs> we'll do it next week. <laughs> Okay, I want to talk about, um, God, there's so many things to talk about with you. You have too much good stuff to talk about. You have such a rich, rich, rich life. And um, let's talk about SEMA because you oh. went to SEMA last year with a vehicle for the first time. Yeah, and it was an unconventional way to go to SEMA because it was a customer vehicle. <laughs> um, a lot of people build cars just for SEMA. And we were building a car for a customer that I thought would enjoy SEMA. So it was a very inverse, and I thought the vehicle would be a good fit for SEMA was the other thing. So, and that was mom's T-Bird. That was the 1959 Ford Thunderbird. Um, never been done before with a 59 on converted from the unibody to a full frame with all modern suspension, power steering, power brakes, remote power brakes to boot um and then had an all leather interior that was meant to be exact original so the interior of the car had to look just like mom's car for the customer his dad bought the car for his wife in 1961 and she drove the wheels off it the kids grew up in it the kids drove it i mean they had they had it on and off the road for a period of time after like up till like, I want to say 1992 or 94, somewhere in there. And then they just parked it because it just wasn't running quite right. And by the time they found us, um, it was really dumb luck. We had been, we had been through our expansion and the article from Wisconsin State Journal came out and a friend of his that worked on the railroad gave him the article. So it was really all happenstance and he had been trying to get other shops to do it. Nobody would do it. They all said, you can't do that. <laughs> so, was it his idea to put it on a full chassis or was that? No, he said he wanted to do, he wanted to build a car that could drive, that they could drive up highway one in California without a concern that they could take down route 66. They wanted to drive it from the East coast to the West coast. And you can't do that in a 1959 car with all the old parts. You just can't. And especially with the car that they were starting with, I mean, it had 
almost no quarter panels left. I had to hand fabricate the outer wheel housings because they were gone. Um, we did, we got the quarter panels all replaced. We had to do a bunch of repair on the doors. So even the sheet metal and the trunk area was, it wasn't solid. So if he had wanted us to save it as a unibody car, it was not, it wasn't realistic, I guess is the, yeah. That's that's the ground level evaluation of where that car was at. So when we saw the pictures, and we did this one without seeing it in person, we sent him an estimate for what we thought the car could be, just based on the photos that he had emailed us. Wow. And Steve was the brainchild behind it. He went and he was like, we have to keep it all Ford, but we can put a chassis under it with all modern suspension. Um, it can have power steering, power brakes, AC. It's got the Coyote 5.0 in it. And then we had Manda Marie do the upholstery that was exact original replica, but in really high-end leather. She hand sculpted the foam for the dash. I mean, it was it was unreal. But the only the only thing we didn't touch was the steering wheel because his mother had had her hands on that steering wheel for decades. So it was left alone. There's chips in it. There's some little cracks in it, but it's his mom's. I mean, you can't, I you can't replace that. that. So, yeah. So we left the steering wheel, and um, we actually just. I mean, there were a lot of bugs in it. We built that car in. Um, it was physically built in ten months. We had it on the property for twelve months, but we had other jobs on the property. We built that car in ten months, and we had a women's day, so we had a bunch of women welders and builders some of the most fabulous people i've ever met came out and helped us for a day because we were so behind <laughs> we needed the help i love and it was that. Just, that was so cool it was such an emotional bill yeah yeah it, it was amazing to have them pitch in and the gratitude that the owners have and just seeing the looks on their faces now that they've been driving they drove the wheels off it already and like for me i'm like okay we just built this car and it's all custom please keep it nearby or like semi-local and they're like no we're going to illinois <laughs> like, God, no, that scares me <laughs> like i mean you gotta have faith in what you build but you're still like yeah. You just don't, it's custom. You don't know. I mean, it's nobody's ever done it before. And like one clamp comes loose and you have a big leak. So you just want to make sure that it's, it's all done. And once things go through heat cycles, I mean, you know, once it, they, they just, they move when you drive them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I heard, I, I don't remember who, who was, I think it was, um, uh, Dave Kindig's shop. They, um, they put, like 500 miles or something on their cars before they give them back for that very reason yeah. like to make sure that they've like rattled out any of the things that are going to rattle out so that, that can get fixed before they give it back because that is 100 percent the truth like when when you're done yeah. for SEMA, you're not actually done for real life you're not done and we brought it home at, after SEMA, and that was what november so then we had it all winter but we're in wisconsin can't drive it so it was a matter of we had to do a custom tune so i had to get out the laptop and drive it up and down the road and like log all the data logs and send them for the tuner and have it adjusted and things like that and um so i put 250 miles on it after sema at least nice. um and it was it's still i mean you still just don't know yeah. <laughs> I just, and letting them go, I mean, you get attached to them. They have a 
a story behind them, and you kind of, once you drive them around and stuff, you're like, oh, right. I really like this car. Do I have to give it back? <laughs> it's like have, it's like fostering dogs. Like, I don't know how anybody does that. Yeah. You get attached to it, yeah. <laughs> you fall in love, and then you have to give it back? Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, well, I didn't give my foster dogs oh, back. Oh, yeah, that's so. right. I forgot. <laughs> you have a new foster dog that you didn't give back. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, he's adopted now. Yeah, I failed at fostering. Yeah. I yeah, didn't even me. think of that when I made that <laughs> reference. I was 100%. That is so funny. What, yeah. kind of, what kind of dog is it again? He's a great thing. And what's really funny is, like, just last week, I heard on, like, a newscast that Great Dane rescues are seeing decreased numbers because people aren't watching Scooby-Doo. And I'm like, what? This is ridiculous. Oh, my God. That's so funny. I love him. He's such a goofball. But he's an adolescent, so, you know, you just never know what he's going to do. Okay, Some days he's great. Other days he's totally bipolar. On top of all of the rest of the things that you've got going on. Yeah. Kids, shop, house, business, yeah. all of the things. Now you've got a, an adolescent Great Dane. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You're crazy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and all the more power. You got to just, like, not think about it. Just do things. You don't think. You know, you plan later when you know what to plan for. Yes. Jump out of the plane, build your parachute on the way down. Uh -huh. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you asked me that. If, if that was 10 years ago, I would not have been comfortable with that at all. But yeah, yeah. now it's like, yeah, whatever. I'm good. <laughs> I, even even from when I first met you, because I think I met I met you, what, 2017, right? Was yeah, the first yep. time I met you. Yeah, Vermont. And um, and you were yep. you were definitely like a whole lot more like, nope, this is what we planned. This is what we're gonna do. This is, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and now uh -huh. you're like, yeah. hey, let's figure it out. Let's let's go. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think. Yeah, you have to evolve. I mean, if you don't evolve, what are you doing? <laughs> when I think working on cars and working on metal and working on like all of that stuff, like you can the mm -hmm. best laid plans, like you can come up with exactly what your plan of action is going to be, but then the the metal or the panel or the car that you're working on, whatever it is, like it says, mm, no, I don't think so. And you've got to change, change direction. Yeah. Yeah. Especially metal work. Yeah. I will say the biggest lesson that I, I learned from Molly when you were taking, when you were participating in the Chevy montage build was the notes, all <laughs> of the notes. <laughs> Molly leaves. I left you so many notes, notes when I left you. On I wanted to ingrain it in your brain. I'm like, she's not gonna move to the next group of people without them all knowing what every little thing is gonna happen here. It's I not gonna it. happen. I love it. Molly left little <laughs> notes on everything. Any panel that she touched, any part of the car that she touched, there was a little piece of tape with a note saying where she was yep. at, what needed to happen next. What was the priority? Like the whole kit and caboodle. And I, when I went to visit your shop, I just, it made my heart so happy when I walked into your shop and I saw little pieces of tape with notes all yeah. over them. All yeah. over them. Um, you can't trust your own memory, I gotta say. No. It's not reliable. No, the older I get, particularly. Oh my goodness. Um, AZ Mike the welder would like to know what your welding backstory is. So, how how did you get into welding and how how tell us that story sort of by accident 
Um, I was still working in corporate. I mean, Steve, I was running the book side of the business and things, and I want to say it was in, it was either 2011 or 2012, and I think I wanted to make something, like I wanted to make yard art or something silly, I don't remember. I think we just had a bunch of scrap metal, and Steve was just like, hey, you should learn how to weld. I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, I don't think he had ever offered prior to that. So I'm just like, yeah, why not? Okay, fine. So he taught me how to weld in like he's he tells the story like I learned how to how to make weld in five minutes. I'm still working on TIG. I'm not gonna pretend I don't TIG every day. And that I mean that is like a muscle. If you don't use it, it gets out of condition and then you you're not good again. <laughs> so I stick with the MIG welding for the most part and I mean I can replace panels with the best of them and you'll never know I was there so um I don't I guess I'm Steve always complains that I'm one of those people that he shows me something for like three minutes and I'm good at it and I don't my sister always said that about me too but I still see the imperfection so I'm still standing there like well that's not perfect though so I'm my own worst enemy, but then everybody, I get the, yeah, it's, it's silly. So it was quick and dirty. That's how I learned to weld. <laughs> it's not, it's not silly. I think that's a really, it's a common theme that I hear. It's like the, the being a perfectionist and being critical on yourself is both what drives you to being amazing <laughs> and excelling and yet never realizing it for yourself that you're excelling. And it's this interesting yeah. double-edged sword because you you want to like like we we want to find the, the place where we can acknowledge our own skills and be like yeah i am good at that and at the same time yeah it's the thing it's the self-criticalness that keeps pushing me to be better and keeps driving me to like just like you finding that little imperfection be like mm, not okay with that need to get better yeah so it's a yeah it's an interesting it's I I was just talking to I think it was actually Brianna about that and it's like I have imposter syndrome and I am still suffering from it where every day I'm doing something something humbles me along the way and I'm like I am an imposter like I don't actually belong here I shouldn't actually be doing this and those are days where like other things are impacting your mindset so you have to sort of drag yourself out of the gutter and be like no stupid like you you've been doing this for a while you know how to do it maybe you need to take a one minute break take a breath and then reevaluate so yeah i mean it's there are days that are mental struggles that you are fighting your own battle i mean it's there's nobody that's telling you that's terrible it's all in your own mind totally and that's god that's a topic we could probably talk about for like a whole nother hour um which we don't have oh, yeah. unfortunately but if i find it fascinating yeah. like, i don't i i don't know that i've ever heard a, a man in our industry say i feel like an imposter so it's this interesting yeah, nope. thing with this imposter <laughs> syndrome this idea of i'm not i don't know if i'm good enough i don't know if i really deserve to be here or if i belong like i i don't during the Chevy montage, watching the women kind of come through and seeing the consistency with which, oh, as women, we would run into an issue, a problem, a challenge, a struggle, and we would go, why do I not know how to do this? Why am I not good enough? Yeah. Why am I not smart enough? Why do I not know more? Whereas 
all the men that I've worked with throughout my career, they run into a, a problem or a challenge and they, and it's immediately like, well, this stupid part doesn't fit. This stupid thing wasn't made right. This, and it's all very external, right? <laughs> but we are so yeah. quick to go, oh, this isn't working perfectly. It must be because I'm an imposter. And you know what? You're so right. You are so right, because I will immediately question my own skill before I question a part, which within the next 10 minutes, I usually figure out is the reverse problem because they're aftermarket or, you know, right. whatever it is. Totally. It's like the stuff that I make fits. The stuff I buy doesn't. So <laughs> what is going on here? <laughs> but yeah, no, you're totally right. And I don't know if that's... Uh, uh, it's either a blessing or a curse. It's one of the two, both probably ways. Either way you look at it. It's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. I remember we had a, a, a fender that wasn't fitting on the montage. And, um, mm -hmm. and we beat ourselves up every which way you possibly could beat yourself up. And we, like, we thought it was because we were failures. We weren't good enough. We couldn't see it. We could not put it together right. We, like all of the things. And then I finally like threw in the towel. I was like, I've got to call one of my buddies. I got to call one of my male friends who, who, who builds cars. custom. And, yep. and I called him up and he goes, Oh yeah, they never fit. You just got to cut it. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> I know. Well, and that's where like Steve keeps me in reality. I mean, he has a, he had a background in collision also and nothing ever fit for collision. Um, so, I mean, he's used to, modify fit fit the gaps fit the panel then make the part fit you know that sort of thing and we we do everything we can here to do it in the right order and make sure that everything is correct to the way it needs to fit for body lines the problem is, is most of the time we're trying to make stuff fit better than it did from the factory yeah so you know <laughs> there's that whole side of it too i mean it, it's just a it's a journey with every single one of the cars i am noticing that like the late 70s trans ams and firebirds were never meant to fit so <laughs> they're a whole other animal yeah. i mean i think old cars in general like they just they never they never lined up perfectly right like these these old trucks no. like, they were farm trucks they weren't meant to be show trucks they were farm trucks the gaps were never right yes. <laughs> yeah. yep. we watched a video we did a 51 ford convertible and we were steve was really frustrated he's like this front clip does not want to go where it was in the first place ever not in a million years it's not going to fit none of the bulls line up and i don't i think i was at lunch or eating lunch or whatever but I was watching a YouTube video of the Ford assembly line and they were putting the 50 Ford, they had the entire front clip on a crane and they flew it in and it went whack into the body of the car. And Steve's like, are you shitting me? <laughs> well, that's how they did it. So how are you going to do it now? Like, <laughs> and a whole lot of backspace so you can get that momentum there and oh. then you can just ram it into place. Oh my God. <laughs> it was ridiculous. So I mean, it's a reality check and then you read some of the manuals. That same car had a manual that said that if the door would not fit from top corner to bottom corner, that you cover it with asbestos paste, heat it with a torch, and then use this giant C-clamp that was the size of the door and squish it. <laughs> and we're like, what? You 
No. OSHA will be here tomorrow. We can't do that. Wow. <laughs> that is not an option. Interesting. <laughs> it's so yeah. I find that so liberating, though, right? Because for me, yeah. learning all of that stuff, learning all of the craziness that went into it, learning that, you know, so many folks are just like, well, if it doesn't fit, make it fit, right? Because that's the mindset, yeah. like, make it fit. Oh, yeah. Like, that opened me up to getting out of the imposter syndrome a little bit, right? Is that if it's not making sense, make it make sense. If it's not fitting, make yeah. it fit. If that piece of metal doesn't fit, it's just metal, cut it, shape it, make it do, like, make it submit. Yeah. <laughs> and that that's what everybody's Modify. Modify. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. exactly. That's like, that's our thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's so true. It's totally true. I mean, nothing ever fits out of the box, especially, I mean, and then you learn the more stuff you buy and the more stuff you try and buy that doesn't fit. You're like, well, no, you really need to go new old stock on things like actual hinges or hinge latch, door latch assemblies, stuff like that. Because, I mean, you can't buy certain things that are quality made anymore. They're just not. So well, they weren't quality made. Yeah, it's a learning process is the problem. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. We are like super running short on time. Like we seriously could talk for like three okay. hours, but I want to like final question. Um, words, words of advice, words of encouragement, um, anything that you would say to somebody who's listening, who either wants to start their own business or is just coming up in the industry. Like what are your words of wisdom to them? Uh, you never know everything. And until you acknowledge that you never know everything, you know nothing. So the biggest, the experts that I know, <laughs> the experts that I know in any industry, I don't care if it's anything from makeup to horses to cattle to cars. If you can't acknowledge that you don't know the answer the first time somebody asks you a question, you are miles behind the person who will find the answer. So you need to figure it out, learn from somebody knows the answer, find that person, get in touch with them, use your resources. So until you can figure it out, I mean, you're just, you're stuck. And you're on, you, you are your own worst enemy. You need to know your limits, so. Preach, preach girl. That is, that is yeah. a phenomenal <laughs> answer. I absolutely love it. Oh my goodness. Um, we are like running out of time. So I want to thank you so, so, so much for hanging out with me for happy hour. You it's are good to finally see you again in person. So, I, know. I miss you. I miss you terribly. Yeah. Um, we are going to hang out soon. Um, I'm going to send you one of these lovelies as a, uh, as a, as a gift for awesome. hanging out with me for happy hour. You dropped some incredible wisdom. You have a ton more. I think we're going to need to do this again at some point here. Um, and uh, for, she just froze up, but everybody out there, there you go. Everybody watching, um, thank you guys all so much for joining in and hanging out with us. This will live over in my IGTV forever or as long as Instagram exists. Um, and <laughs> so you can watch it again and pick up on all that knowledge <laughs> that she dropped. So for now, I'm gonna bid you guys all adieu. Make sure you come back next week for our next amazing guest. You'll have to tune in to find out who that is. Um, and also keep an eye if you have Motor Trend on demand or the Motor Trend app. 
Um, there's a there's a fun little new thing getting dropped tomorrow that you may want to pay attention to. Just saying, I'm throwing a little a little teaser out there for everybody watching that there is uh, something something new dropping on Motor Trend on demand that you'll wanna oh, you'll cool. wanna watch. But uh, I know, I know. <laughs> so I love you, Molly. Thank you guys all for tuning in. Have a fantastic rest of your week, everybody. Cheers. Happy, happy hour. Cheers. Love you. Cheers. Bye. Bye, guys.